Hello, welcome to episode number 191 of the AppLog Podcast. I'm your host. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by BetterHelp.com. Get affordable private online counseling anytime, anywhere. Talk with a licensed professional therapist online. You can get a seven-day trial with the code word AppLog by going to BetterHelp.com slash AppLog. Get it. Get it good. <laughs> Radio talk. Uh, thanks to Amazon shoppers for shopping on the on uh, using my affiliate code. You too can help the show out by going to these following links. If you're from Canada, go to appalog.ca slash Amazon. If you're the, from the United States, go to appalog.ca slash US Amazon. And you can do it the old-fashioned way by going to appalog.ca. Click on those banners located on the right side. Locate your country. Whether you're from Canada, the United States, or the UK, bookmark all those links, and every time you shop on Amazon, use all those links to shop and support the show. Cost you no extra money. I'd like to thank people for going to Patreon. Patreon. I'd like to thank everybody for going to Patreon and becoming a patron. You can become a patron, too, by going to patreon.com slash Pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel any time. If you want to buy a t-shirt, go to applelog.ca slash shop and buy some music there too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review the show, give it five stars, please. And follow me on uh, Twitter, SimonHead666. Like the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash pod. Today on the show, I have Mr. Howard Ungerleiter. He is a light designer. He owns a business. He is a... Um, He's been in the business for 40 plus years as a light designer, tour manager, as all sorts of things, production manager mostly. He mostly did a lot of work with the band Rush. He also worked with Def Leppard. He's worked with everybody. And we had a nice conversation. I, I, I kind of contacted him through LinkedIn. And LinkedIn really isn't good for anything except for getting people on podcast. There, I said it. So here he is, Mr. Howard Ungerleader on the Apolog podcast. Hello. Hey, Howard. It's Simon. How you doing? Good, buddy. How are you? Good. You hear me okay? Yeah, now I can. Amazing. Cool. Well, it is nice to meet you. Um, as as it goes, uh, you know, being a, a Rush fan for so many years and being also into Canadian music and things like that, you seem to be always sort of pinned to the early parts of like lighting and, uh, you know, and I, I understand you started as a tour manager. Yeah, I was... Um Mitri D, tour manager. <laughs> Mitri D, you know, tour accountant. So, so in the seventies, what? Where did you? You're you're from America originally, right? I'm from New York. New York, originally. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did where did you start out down there? Where did I start out? I started out um, in my garage playing music, and um, eventually attempted to go to university, and. Uh, after a year, I got sort of tossed out for a prank that I uh, was involved with. That didn't go very well. <laughs> so um, 
that was in South Jersey in a place called Monmouth College at the time, which is now called Monmouth University. Hmm. And um, for that year that I was there, I was uh, on the uh, student council booking uh, rock shows. So I got to meet a lot of people in New York that were instrumental in bringing famous bands uh, down to play concerts. So when I got booted, um, I went into New York and uh, hassled people for weeks on end that uh, I knew from, you know, my university year. Uh, and I stumbled into um, an office trying to get this band that I was in a recording contract because I was young and naive and didn't realize that that was like not the way to go to do it. So I walked into this gentleman who was um, sort of agent manager named Sean LaRoche. And he was working with The Who at the time and a bunch of other bands. And I could never get in there because the secretary would blow me off every time I went to the office. It's like, you know, what do you want? Mr. LaRoche is busy. So I finally established a pattern of when the secretary goes to lunch and when I can just walk by her desk into the office and find him to meet with him. And I did that one day and kind of freaked him out because like, who are you? And then I basically reminded him what I did. And, you know, he goes, well, what do you want? And I said, I want a recording contract for my band. I'm trying to figure out how to get my band out here to work. And then he, he got really upset and basically straightened me out and said, listen, before you come in here and embarrass yourself like this, he goes, why don't you understand this business that you're walked into so that you can speak with intelligence when you're talking about things, not like a child coming in looking for some kind of a handout. So that was kind of, you know, uh, demoralizing. A rude awakening. Yeah. <laughs> rude awakening. So I said, okay, what do you suggest? He's, wrote down a list of names. He goes, these are some people you could probably get a job delivering coffee, doing the mail, you know, they may need, you know, someone like a runner. He goes, you go out there and you tell them, you use my name and say that I sent you and see what comes up. He goes, other than that, let's get out of here because, you know, there's 10,000 bands in this world that come to my office and maybe out of the 10,000, one will be signed. It's not going to be your band. I can guarantee that. <laughs> wow. So he says, get real, learn the business and um, move on, which I did. So I went around and I knocked on doors and I stumbled across this place called, um, at the time it was a transitionary place. It was called American Talent International, formerly Action Talent. Mm -hmm. And a gentleman named Jeff Franklin, who was the president. And I went in there and used uh, Sean's name, and they said to me, um, you know you have to be in here every day at 9 o'clock. I said, yeah. He said, and if you're late, you're fired. And, you know, the pay isn't great, and you're going to have to run around and do anything we ask you to do. And if that's the kind of job you're looking for, you can start on Monday. So I'm like, yeah, that's great. I got in there, American Talent International. It was right across from Carnegie Hall at 888 7th Avenue. It was funny because that agency was on the 21st floor, and right below it was Premier Talent, who was the agent for The Who. Wow. 
<laughs> and, and a lot of other bands, ELP and all these bands from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Were, that agency was a huge agency, and that was right on the floor below. So I was in the right place at the right time. And over time, I worked my way up from the mailroom to an agent. And I was taught by um, a guy named Bruce Payne, who was an agent in that company. And I was sent out doing a lot of bands, making sure they got paid, booking their shows. And um, I developed, like, I always had an interest in production because Mm -hmm. in high school I was doing all the lighting for all the plays because no one else knew how to patch lights or they didn't want to deal with all that. So um, I had a passion for it, aside from being a musician. So while I was traveling with these bands that were represented by ATI, they asked me questions. You know, I travel with like Deep Purple, Fleetwood Mac, all these bands at that time that were massive. Mm-hmm. And they would say, what do you think of our show? And, that, you know, back then there was really not a show. It was just the band on stage playing music with some lights. Yeah. And I would say that to him. I said, well, there's not really a show, but, you know, you guys sound amazing. And it was, you know, that's what counts. It's the music. They go, wow, we want a show. So I started creating shows, for, you know, or giving them ideas for for lighting and, and things like that. And, you know, I would charge them on the side for it. And eventually the uh, the owner of the company got drift and wanted to know who I work for. Mm-hmm. I said, I work for you. <laughs> He goes, well, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that you're working for my bands, taking money and doing other things. So I'm like, yeah. I said, but that's just lighting. He goes, I said, you know, you're an agent, but you have nothing. To... He goes, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. He goes, you wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for me. These are my bands that I signed. Mm-hmm. Where's my cut? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, as a kid, you <laughs> spent all the money. So all the time you got paid, you just spent it, right? <laughs> It was like I had no money. He's like, okay, well, that just leaves me two choices. So I said, well, what's that? He goes, well, you can um, get on a plane and go to Canada and take a decrease in salary and work for this band, this club band up there. I said, and what's the second choice? He goes, you're fired. Fired. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, okay, what band is it? And he goes, oh, no one's heard of them before. It's a Mm. group from Canada called Rush. Mm-hmm. So he, I sort of got sent up to Kent to Toronto to do Rush. Ex- you got expelled from America. <laughs> yeah, that's after the, well, the, they, yes, I did. And they, they signed a deal with Mercury Records in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. And the guy that signed them um, was Cliff Bernstein. Yeah. Who's right now the owner of Q Prime that manages, you know, Jelly Peppers, Metallica. Metallica yeah. You know, he, you know, a bunch of bands. So <clears throat> they signed Rush, and Rush didn't know anything about touring. And my job was to Educate take them. them on tour and make sure they uh, understand the ins and outs of touring, which I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, while I was how they, how old but, were they at the time? Like they, in their old? early twenties, right? Like late teens, early twenties. I was twenty-two, so they had to be around twenty. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, it, it was perfect. You're garbage. teaching them the ropes and you'd be like, but yeah, <laughs> like we were a bunch of like teaching, you know, I was teaching them what I knew yeah. and you know, they were from Canada and um, yeah. it was kind of funny because our, you know, some of our first dates were like, I, I hadn't been to Canada very often. Yeah. I think I was up there, you know, to, doing shows at Massey Hall sure. when I was representing um, bands like 
Sauvignon and Deep Purple and stuff like that. But um, I never spent time in Canada. So one of our first trips, we had to do a show in Cochrane, Ontario. <laughs> Right, so I, you know, being from New York, you know, I'm 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 there. I'm wearing denim jacket, <laughs> jeans, you know, and we're in the we're in the rental car. We're driving up towards Cochrane, and then we get about halfway up there, and uh, Alex and Ged say to me, um, "Do you have any warm clothes?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, well, yeah." I said, "I'm wearing it right here." He goes, "So that's all you brought? The denim jacket and jeans and stuff." You don't have anything? I said, well, I have a, a jacket, but it's, you know, aside from this one, it's about the same thickness. He goes, you know something? He goes, I want you to pull the car over right now. I want you to get out of the car and take a really big, deep breath. And then come back in here and tell me what you think. And I'm like, well, why do you want me to do it? He goes, just do it. So I do it. I pull the car over. I get out. I take this big, deep breath. And it feels like someone's taking razor blades and slicing my nostrils open. And I go to get back in the car and my hand freezes to the, uh, the door. Yeah. To the door. <laughs> it's minus 35. That's the coldest I've ever experienced. I can't believe how freaking cold it was outside this car. And they locked the doors. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like freaking out going, open the doors. It's freaking cold. And then they go, I think we better stop at the next truck stop and yeah. get you a park and some clubs. <laughs> I said, yeah, that may be a good idea. Let's do that. Right? Yeah. So yeah. that was my introduction to uh, the cold, the, the great white north. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I did almost the exact same thing with a band called Sum 41, where they were like yep. 17, 18. And I took them all throughout America as a tour manager, as their first tour manager. And mm -hmm. uh, they enjoyed me, my company, because I told them that, well, hey, you guys got a record on the radio, and you're and you got an album on a major record label. You should go out and have as much fun as you possibly can because uh, you might not be here next year. So they mm -hmm. they let me stick around for a while, which I thought was a, yeah. <laughs> so teaching band, uh, teaching a band the ropes is like I, I I think we there's a resonance there with me. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's like you know with Rush, it was uh, when we first started, we were rental cars, right, and we yeah. were opening for Uriah Heep, which. This this band was massive. It was a band from England that had some really heavy duty hit singles, well not singles but albums. Yeah, and uh, they were selling out every night. And Rush was the opening act, and that just broke them so far open. That and and, and uh, Kiss, right? Like opening for Kiss and stuff. They, well, Uriah Heep was the first one. Yeah. Okay. For. Yeah. Yeah. And. Then WMMS uh, in Cleveland, the big rock radio station. Yeah, they put, put them their, on rotation. That's right. Yeah, they put them on rotation. When they first played, everybody thought it like was working the new man. Zeppelin album. Yeah, it was working made. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and they just, you know, the lines lit up. And then you know, before you know it, they would, had a, you know, everybody wanted them. And yeah. they were, the, the really great thing about it was when I first started with them. And I heard them play, you know, every night from not even knowing who they were to hearing them play, there was a, a power between the, the trio that was awesome. Like when I first was hired to come up and, and deal with Rush, there was no drummer. I never met John Rutsey and um, he was gone. They were looking for another drummer and, and they were auditioning people while I was you know, hired. Mm -hmm. And um, the amazing thing is that, you know, they, they found Neil and, Next thing you know, Rush were the new version of Rush. Powerful Report. band. That's yeah. It was 
But there was a power that came off the stage that I recognized that I'd never heard before. Um, you know, I, I did hear it once with The Who, because yeah. The Who always were a very powerful live band. You know, you mm-hmm. could always count on that band sounding like what they produced. And Rush was just something. Something was clicking, and everybody heard it. And, I, and bands were paranoid of them, some of them, when we opened up for, like Aerosmith, for instance, or Ted Nugent, their sound guys would turn the PA almost down to nothing. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, you know, they were just really messing with them. Like Aerosmith never let Rush even put their gear on stage till the doors opened. Yeah. Yeah, politics like that still exists, you know, like with certain bands in in the industry where they make the opening band kind of feel marginalized. And it's like, but it also makes them hungry, right? It makes them like, you know what? Fuck you guys. We're going to we're going to rock this. We don't need we don't need your big help. Yeah, it's like when people give them bad reviews, it just fuels the fire to say fuck them, right? Yeah. And let's move on and you know, let's let's prove them wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's it's let's prove people wrong. That was the thing, you know. We'll do what we do. Mm-hmm. And you know, they can fuck right off. If yeah. they, can, they can have their opinions. That's great. But this is what we're doing right now. So it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, from day one, you know, like, well, from from my day one onwards, I, you know, I grew with them, so. Yeah, because technology would have grown, too, with it. Like, you know, you had a, what, basically a big two-scene board, right? Like, when you first started doing touring lights and things like that. Like, you know, I was sort of had a a little edge because um, I knew some people down in Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. And they knew what I liked. And before Rush had started, I had a friend of mine, Tim Pace, had put together um, these lights from a uh, an auction, like a military auction. <laughs> and they were called Marine Beacon Lights. And they were the size of a par, but they didn't, they, they were low voltage, you know, mm-hmm. or 13 volt lamp. And then you'd have to hook them up in series of eight to run them. And, uh, I slapped them in a park can at this, at, you know, this lighting company in Virginia and we filled the room with smoke to see what they looked like. And they were called Marine beacon lights and they went for a quarter of a mile, with a tight, narrow beam. Jesus. Later they became aircraft landing lights. And I <laughs> guess I was one of the first people to actually have them put in park cans. <laughs> oh, I started wow. using them. Like originally we put them in the park cans for little feet. The band yeah, little yeah, feet. little feet, yeah, yeah. And then after that, I moved them over to Rush, and then I started experimenting with them and using them. I had C Factor in New York build transformers for the lights so they could run them individually. Mm-hmm. I had custom consoles made. So when I worked with Rush, and we had a, the first two scene preset board had a joystick on it. It had submasters so you could pin matrix combinations of things. Mm. And I could take four scenes and use the joystick and just have them just scan around those four scenes yeah. whenever. And I just changed the pin matrix to make a new four scene. So it's like, it was kind of a, a Star Trek-y type of board. Yeah. And um, Big as piss. Big as sin too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It, 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 was, it was pretty slick. And it had all these different color lights on it. It was just unique. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, you know, in those days... You know, you couldn't afford, you know, trust, and there were no, there were no motors that you would use because you had to use these genie towers. All oh the time yeah, yeah, were, they still right? exist. I see them around. Yeah, and yeah. the Pink Floyd used to use them, and they used to have them rise. You know, instead of putting them up and focusing, they used to make them rise, and then they were pre-focused, right? Yeah. 
and that was the big effect. So what what I had done was I made these things called flying T's. So on the top of the uh, of the tower, there used to be big square frames. So I made them in the shape of a T, uh-huh. and I would put four of them behind the stage and when these t's would line up they would make a truss configuration it would look like a truss <laughs> and all i did was put a pipe at the bottom of the uh of the t mm-hmm. and hang a black drape so when you look at the stage it looked like one big truss across the back with oh, a ton amazing. of lights on it yeah and that was the first rush tour it was like yeah. you know when they started uh t- headlining that's amazing and you know it, I saw an old poster of Akita Bala. I was up there with the lowest of the low just last weekend. <laughs> and I saw an old Rush poster up there. I said, you know, this place is so synonymous with Canadian rock and roll and touring. And, and my very first gig actually ever was there. And I was, I was a stagehand for David Wilcox in like 1987. Wow. And, and I, I, and my last gig subsequently, actually my last gig, my first gig were at Akita Bala at this point. So, uh, but you look at you look at something like that, and you roll into that place, and the place looks like it's going to fall down. And then here come you guys with stuff, and you start throwing it in there. And it's like, does it is it going to hold it? I mean, it's like <laughs> it, it was pretty crazy. Actually, we had a you know we went to Kitabella once. One of my first experiences there, and you know uh, Ray Coburn, the uh, keyboard player from Honeymoon Suite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His dad was the owner when we were there. Oh, really? And yeah, oh. and uh, you know he was Ray Coburn Senior, and um, Rush rolled in there, and we were supposed to play for an hour. And, and the agency booked it, and we played for fifty-eight minutes. Yeah. And the agent that was there, who will remain nameless, <laughs> got really pissed off and took our money and left for two minutes. And me being from New York and having a very short fuse when I was younger at the time went up to Ray Coburn senior and said, um, where's our money? And he's like, well, you didn't play a full hour set. So, uh, we're not paying you. I said, yeah, you're going to pay us. I said, cause I need that money. And he goes, well, what do you need that money for? <laughs> I said, to fix my truck. And he goes, well, what's wrong with the truck? I said, the brakes are slipping. I said, and it's parked up on here by your you know, club and the brakes are slipping. And he's like, what are you saying? I said, I think my truck's going to slam into your club and do some damage unless we get that money to fix it. And he didn't like that very much. <laughs> Next thing you know, the agent was called back and we got paid and we left. <laughs> well, well, I, the band I, well, I worked for, uh, well, Lois and Lowe, they were back in their sprinter van up and knocked over a fence post. And it was like so rotten that it just sort of touched it and the thing just completely fell apart. There's like this little fence in front of where the audience comes in and they backed into it. And then it still hasn't really changed there when it comes to like cranky promoters and the owner. I never met the owner, but I, I think I met him years and years ago when I was out there with Sloan. But yeah, it was just like this moment and you walk into this 42 degree venue that's empty and you're like, what the what the hell is going on here? I know it's it, it was a crazy place. I mean, you know. I remember jumping in the lake there and like not comprehending how freezing cold that water was. <laughs> yeah. It was and like, shallow. It was, yeah. It was like, Oh my God, I lost my breath. It was like, it was like, I put my hand into a spider web with about 20 dog spiders. And yeah. I didn't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, cause that's how cold it was. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, t- so touring with technology, like this is sort of like this sort of like this, is what excites me about when, when bands sort of, 
they they sort of somehow push the envelope or productions push the envelopes based on the limited means or money or what is brought to them. And it, uh, my observation, although I, and it's obvious that when Rush started off and you were kind of helping them out with with doing lights and light design, which never really was like you said before a uh, an actual profession unless you were in the theater. That if yeah. you you know so so to have a piece of equipment on every tour that sort of puts a new club in your bag. That's that's too- well, you know, when you first started and you're playing lots of theaters because that's where you'd have to go to play your shows. You know, um, you weren't big enough for an arena, and then theaters were there, and you'd have to use their in-house production in the early '70s and you know mid '70s. You would go in there and. This, You'd have what's called the piano board, which was what you had in your high school, which a bunch of dimmers, the big dimmers that you'd lock off and do combinations. You'd have your red, blue, green lights overhead, what they called x-rays. And you would just, you know, you would just throw cues with these big consoles, you know, and there was a place called the Michigan Palace that had a lot of lights and they had a lot of these dimmer so that you would lock off. I'm sure you've probably seen them in a lot of theaters and they have one big master switch and then a bunch of throttles that you would lock in a position and that was your combination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you'd have one guy throwing uh, the, the dimmer panel mm-hmm. and another guy would be on the headsets telling the spots what to do. Yeah. So in my case, I'd have guys on the dimmer panels with headsets and I'd be telling the spots what to do and the guys on the dimmer panels locking switches off. Yeah. Yeah. And as the technology came, so I, so what I tried to do is push as much of the envelope as I could with conventional lighting. When the automation came out, I, I held off on using it for Rush until about 1984, really? 85. And that's when, because um, you know, it came out around 81 mm-hmm. when Genesis came out and they funded the Very Light. And uh, they got behind that. And I didn't want to look like Genesis, but I also wanted to push the envelope on conventional lighting. Yeah, because and do still, do as much as I could. Yeah, with still stuff to do there at that point too, right? Like, oh it's, yeah, it's I was using all sorts of avant-garde theatrical lighting for them, yeah. and you know, creating you know different situations along with the aircraft landing lights, mm-hmm. which were blowing people away. And then I finally, when I unleashed the automation, it was like opened up a whole new world, and it was refreshing and. Now you have to think differently, and now you have to think about where the lights are when they're not on, so yeah. that when you go from one scene to the next, it's smooth. So, you know, you learn a lot doing that. Yeah. And from my days as an agent working with Blue Oyster Cult and lasers quite a bit, I had a laser background as well, which oh, yeah. brings me... You know, which brings me up to my current thing yeah. with my company production design. We're building lasers and renting lasers out to these big tours. So, yeah. Well, I remember um, what was the Grace Under Pressure tour? I'd never seen so many like little mirrors and weird spots and just, oh, yeah. just designing how like it's based. It's coming out of one argon laser generator, right? Is that how? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. It's coming out of one laser and then you split it up into several different. Yeah, you went through optical glass splitters and yeah. you could then hit mirrors with those. You used to have four-way splitters. Yeah. So you could have, you know, two beams coming out simultaneously yeah. and go through two four-way splitters and get eight beams going to eight mirrors. And all of a sudden, those two beams become 16 beams in a beam matrix. Yeah, yeah. You know? and, and were you much of the were you with projections too when Rush was on tour? Because I remember somebody told me this story about they had this deflector 
upstage that's a sort of mirrored mylar thing that <clears throat> what they used to project onto. Yeah, we used to do a lot of that. I mean, you know, I started all that off. Mm-hmm. We actually started with Fly by Night when we we put it. We made the owl fly from the owl <laughs> using Kodak SAV projectors. You know, um, the mirrors were used on occasion when we didn't have enough room right. to project, and we had to figure out a way to project. So we used the mirrors. So we bounced the projectors off a mirror to increase the size to get, you know, as much as we could. Yeah. Um, but later on, the, the SAV projectors moved into you know, 35 millimeter projectors, which were pretty, you know, slick, but there's a learning curve to them. Yeah. You know, especially when you're using multiple projectors and you want to keep them all in sync and the motors are all running at different speeds. You have to have, you know, encoders to make sure that all those motors are running in sync together mm-hmm. and they have to count the sprocket holes. You know, I created, a, you know, my own, uh, angst <laughs> because we it was a lot of work and there was a lot of and anytime anything broke you'd have to count sprocket holes to make sure you got the exact amount so it would stay in sync wow. you know we use click tracks and all sorts of things to uh coordinate the films to the band yeah up, up until the point where it drove neon crazy and he just refused to wear clicks in his head anymore he just went by light didn't he towards the end of like he just looked at a, at a metronome light is that isn't that how he did that no he, he just had a went. metronome for himself okay yeah but yeah. yeah no i i dealt with it because that by that time we had media servers and i have to you know check the frames per second and pick a musical cue time it and make sure that if i hit this cue on this note then everything will be in sync it was like roll the bones when i used to do that it was free fall. It was a free falling thing, but it had a rap in the middle of it. Oh right, right, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I had to pick a musical point, which was a a note that Alex would play. Yeah. And if I hit my media server on that note at the right exact moment, the whole thing would come together and be perfect. <laughs> and every night I just was like, be there, hitting that cue, going, "Come on, come on." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, some interesting. Um, uh, sound design in that tour too from what I remember they used like this weird little satellite um, s- s- bit of boxes at the back of the house that would sort of like create some sort of like uh, surround of sorts sort of not well, quite the, Pink Floyd but at the same time like well the satellite was to filter out unnecessary RF oh so it would eliminate any kind of interference signals when they were using wireless right 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 you know yeah so so touring so when did you stop being the tour manager and just becoming like, say the production manager or lighting designer? Like it was like in the nineties. Yeah. It was like, I got, I got tired of doing it. It was a big job. Yeah. And the bigger they you know, the bigger they got, the more people they had. And, um, it was interfering with creativity for me. And I'm, I'm an artist and a musician. So my whole thing was, I'd rather do the, the artistic side than the business side, even though I knew about the business side. Yeah. So, and also, <clears throat> Rush were taking a break for a while, mm-hmm. and it was a good time. I know I spoke to Getty about, you know, passing the torch over to someone else so I can have a little bit more freedom doing the creative. And, um, yeah, it was around the 90s. I think um, Counterparts was the first time that I was not tour manager anymore because I didn't want to be. And... Um, 
It's tough to I wear several up. hats on tour. I, I, I can agree yeah. with you there. It's tough because you have to take an artistic hat off and put the business guy hat on. And, yep. and, and, and then you have to sort of remember what hat you have on. And then when someone comes up to you, you have to remember what hat you need to wear when someone asks a question based on whether it be a design or whether it be a, a, what time we come in tomorrow, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, you know, promoters hated me because I make them wait to the end of the night to settle the show. Ah, because you still have to but, put your stuff away. Yeah, but the, you know, but the saving grace here was if anything would go sour, they weren't running away and going home early. Yeah. And they'd have to be there to deal with it. So that's another thing they hated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, uh, and I did make them wait. Yeah. And, you know, I know they hated it. And they're like, oh my God, I have to do lights and I have to wait till the end of the night. Because most promoters, they want to get the hell out of there. They don't want to stick around. Oh, of course. I mean, what happens with in the level that I'm at is they usually hand off the check, and you're at the end of the night, you're like, oh, everybody's gone. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Let's <laughs> load it yeah, up. Yeah, but we got to figure out percentages. And, yeah. You know, the other thing that, you know, I carried around for years, a ticket counter to count the drop, because at the end of the night, it, it would freak them out. You know, years ago, they were using a printed ticket. It mm-hmm. was a hard ticket. It wasn't computerized. So... A lot of the promoters would take the original order and keep the uh, the paperwork for it, but then they would reprint their own tickets, and they would print an extra 2000 that you wouldn't know about. Mm. And they didn't expect anyone to count what's called the torn ticket stubs, the drop. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And I, and I made them keep the drop, and they would keep the drop, and they would. I made them put it in, in piles of 100, and so they'd have to hire somebody at every gate to to do this. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the night, I had all, they had all the drop, expecting me to, you know, here's what are you going to do with this? Take it to your office? I said, no, I'm going to count it. Yeah. And I counted it in front of them. And they're like, well, how are you going to count this? And then I wheeled out this case that had a dollar sign on it. Mm-hmm. And it was a Pitney Bowes Tick 5 ticket counter. And it was expensive, but it was worth its weight in gold because you would count the drop. And then all of a sudden, we were counting more tickets than were on the manifest. And they were dancing, and I would nail them to the wall a lot of times. <laughs> oh, they couldn't man. believe it. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> oh, no. Well, there's, yeah, I, I, the only time I had something funky like that is when I was working the with a band for Boots and Hearts, and I had to go settle up merch. And I right. had a, the, a very large security guy pad me down. For, for weapons. I'm like, I dude, I, I'm not gonna shoot anybody. You know, and we probably sold maybe two hundred dollars worth of merch to begin with. So I was like, mm-hmm. I'm okay here. But it was like, oh no, no. It was this is the way they had to do it. I mean, you must have been in some pretty dodgy deals and trying to deal with dodgy promoters and, and Oh, in the early days, yeah. I have I have had guns to my head, all sorts of stuff going on. Yeah. And and to have a gun to your head and, and you go, is it really worth that extra two two thousand tickets at that point? Yeah, well, you know, when you're young and feisty, you don't think that way. Mm-hmm. You think that, you know, this is entitled to me and I'm going to do it. And this guy doesn't have the guts to shoot me. And you're crossing your fingers at the same time. <laughs> I, I had a guy named Denny McLean put a gun to my head and padlock this club in Detroit. Denny McLean was a pitcher. I believe he was on the, uh, the Tigers. I think he even played for the Yankees at one point in time. Mm-hmm. He was, he was a nutcase, very, you know, crazy man. And uh, he locked Rush in a club because we sold it out. And he wanted us to play two nights when he was only booked for one. And oh we were supposed to move on to do another show in Evansville, Indiana the next night. You know, so mm-hmm. at the end of the day, uh, 
I had to make a call to New York to get him to unbox the doors. <laughs> but he had a gun to my head going, you're not going anywhere. Wow. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> guess what? We are. <laughs> uh, a, you know, t- I, I can't imagine if things like that really with the, with the current condition of how we are with communication, how that would people would be really get away with that now without something really crazy happening. Or... That wouldn't happen. Yeah, that wouldn't happen now. Yeah. Um, you know, that was back when the industry was just like, it was like the wild west. It was being invented, you know? Yeah. Oh, I remember totally. when I was working at ATI, sending posters to Michael Cole for CPI, you know, for the different shows that he was booking, we would boot publicity up to him from New York. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then for, for his show. So we would have it printed and sent to him. Along with what's called free goods, you know, the, the bands who he was booking, we give free albums so they understood it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who they were getting, and then they would send the albums up there. So we had a room of albums at our disposal that everybody would like, you know, take home for their friends. Yeah, yeah, totally, you know? totally. Yeah. So with CPI, did you know a guy named Bob Mitchell? Of course. Yeah, yeah, he was my boss at the Living Arts Center for a couple of years. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, in Mississauga, yeah. I knew Bob he, for ages. Yeah, he's uh, he's a neat dude. He's got some funny stories too. I mean, man, I should get him on the show because he's got stories of stories. Like he saw the Beatles. Like you know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Like just yeah. the, being being in the business for so long. But yeah, he worked for Band Aid. He was owner of Band Aid uh, Audio or so, I think years yeah. ago. Yeah, no, he's that's he's, where he started. He married his his wife is one two guys I went to high school with. Um, John and Mike is is their sister, so there's this weird connection to these old friends of mine um, from high school, who I still kind of keep in touch with. Just is kind of neat. So, uh, and Bob, right. yeah, Bob's Bob's a good dude. So, yeah, Bob's you know, wife is, is is cool. Yeah, she's really nice. Yeah. So, so you said a little bit of what you're doing in in the modern times, but how did it transfer from sort of like becoming an artist to sort of becoming a businessman again? Like, how did how did that go down? Well, it's because I, it came to the uh, the rude awakening that when the band would take off for you know a year and a half, that there was no, you know, you needed to make money, and I hated the fact that you'd have to go look for work all the time. So it was like it was a constant fishing expedition for work. Mm-hmm. You know, as your reputation grows, it was easier to get work. But you know, um, there came a point in time in the '90s when the band were going to take off for a couple of years and they decided they weren't going to pay retainers anymore. And they basically said, you know, here's uh, here's six weeks salary. You're on your own and we'll, we'll hire you from now on on a need to use basis. And you'll base your salary on that moving forward. And I had just gotten married and it was kind of a shock that all of a sudden your retainer fees would go away. Mm. And now what are you going to do? So I saw it coming, and I started a company in the mid-'80s, a laser company, and um, I was doing it ever since. It was a a way to make sure you always had work when you're on the road and off the road. And um, it started as, you know, me joining a public company in the beginning, and then that didn't work out, and then opening my own company um, in the early 90s after the uh, the retainer stopped. But when the retainer stopped mm-hmm. and they took the big break, I went out and did Tesla and Queensryche. Okay. And a few years before that, I designed the Def Leppard Hysteria Tour that 
It was the first time they played in the round. And this was all this was all Q Prime acts. Right. So Peter Minch and Cliff Bernstein said to me, you know, I heard that, you know, Russia taking a break, you want to come work for us, but you have to sign a, a three-year deal. And, you know, so I said, sure. Mm-hmm. Went ahead, did the three-year deal. Went up doing Queensryche when they had the big silent lucidity hit, and I helped them develop the Operation Mind Crime album, the visuals, and uh, went ahead and brought that to uh, life on the screen for them. And I did all different, you know, Teslas, two tours with Tesla, when they did the Poison Great White tours. And, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in between Rush tours. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did Van Halen one year in the late 90s and um, Todd Rundgren every now and then. It was wow. like, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I did Alicia Keys one year, designed a show for her. I did Moby and David Bowie one year. Wow. The, Designing the Area One and Area Two tours. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. You know, I did Rod Stewart in '94, the Unplugged tour. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot. You know, I was yeah. always staying busy, and I had this company going, special effects company, and this production design that formed out in in 1994. And um, now we're doing bands like Kid Rock and Foo Fighters and Tool, Foreigner. And we're doing television commercials. We're working for advertising agencies. Um, and uh, I remember from 1994, for 14 years, I designed the Toronto International Auto Show for General Motors. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. I've been sort of diversifying into a lot of stuff. Last year, we worked for Hewlett-Packard, and we did an interactive application that um, all the people that were at Coachella would come through the HP dome and be able to run the lasers with the scepter computers that were there. <laughs> and that was all done through infinity marketing in LA. So oh, was, yeah. Yeah. It must yeah, be exciting so, times now with interactive things like when you're, when you can make a virtual world and it's not necessarily with these big led screens by your eyeballs anymore, where you can actually have this whole other motion tracking and all this other stuff is, is Oh yeah. You have everything, you have black tracks, you have all sorts of technology, um, you know, pixel mapping, pixel wrapping, Mm -hmm. um, you know, media servers that are endless that, you know, now you could just put it on your laptop and feed the screens with whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just, it's ever-evolving technology. But, you know, you look at the EDM shows and you go, there's so much stuff happening there and it's like so busy and it's in your face and it's endless. It sort of takes a bit of the art form away as far as I'm concerned. Like, you're, it's a DJ playing, so it's it's repetitive. Yeah, yeah they have to spice so, it up a little. Yeah, I mean, as cool as it looks, it's repetition. It's repetition. So, yeah. you know, um, I like more of the artistic, less is more. Yeah, but you know the EDM shows are cool. It's you know the it's it's what people my age would go to for a concert. They're going to EDM shows now for their entertainment. Oh yeah, yeah. We were it's, speaking about Lakita Bala, and and they do more dance shows than you do rock and roll. Like Kim Mitchell's up there next weekend. I was just there with Lois Lowe and Matt Mays, and then it's all dance, 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 dance because that's where the money is, and that's where people diversify with the monetary yeah. part of of putting on a show. Oh, I know. 
Yeah. I used to think that when Rush got huge and I would never go to Kitabala again. And I'm like, yes, this is the last time I'll ever see this place. And then all of a sudden I'm back there again with Kim Mitchell or, or yeah. with Gowan or someone I'm working with, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And <laughs> that's that thing. I mean, the funny, I, I don't know, we keep, I keep coming back to Kitabala because I was just there. But when you do sound check and you look through the back to the back wall in when the sun's going down, it's, daylight like it's coming through the walls oh i know and my other thing is i started wikipediaing like about what the kitabala was and how it how it started it started as an like ice cream scan stand and it was this little tiny building and the original in 1942 they just kept making it bigger and bigger until they finally tore it down and put this big that kitabala place up not one architect yeah. was hired <laughs> there it is not one <laughs> i'm like you're proud of that right yeah <laughs> and i was there with sloan like 10 years ago and the uh -huh. floor collapsed. Like, it's like it fell in. People fell into the water. It was like, wow, that's interesting. I'm just waiting for like Live Nation to buy it or something, and just build a huge facility there. They have to keep it though. It's you know when you go. You I mean I don't remember this. We used to go to the Toronto Airport Terminal too. There used to be a Weber's Burger Stand. Oh yeah, it looked just like Weber's. It had like a yep. wooden floor. Well, they yeah. should do the same thing. Like only just re make sure the thing doesn't fall into the lake. And then That's right. build around it, you know, like uh, <laughs> you should put a marina inside of it so people could just drive in <laughs> yeah, for a second. Check your boat. Yeah, yeah, sure. Valet <laughs> boat parking. There we go. Now we're talking. There well, you yeah. go. Then you put a sound system across the lake. And Charge money for out. proximity. There you go. So you get close <laughs> to it, you get to hear it in your little radio in your boat. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because Kim Mitchell only sounds better on a dock or in a boat. It's proved. It's proved. <laughs> that's right. It's there, a scientific fact. <laughs> Well, man, I uh, I think I could talk to you all day. I think you have more stories in you, so uh, maybe we could make this a yearly thing where I we get in touch and we talk about old stories. Because uh, oh, that's cool. You know, whatever you want. I yeah, mean, yeah, and I mean, the, what I really impressed by like your career and what my, just on the periphery is that you never really stopped and went. No, that's beyond me. I can't. I can't. This is beyond my limited means of knowledge. That you've always sort yeah. of, and then it's just me projecting now, but you've gone out and you've looked for what makes things more interesting and exciting. And it started from the very early age, and it sort of seems to have snowballed into something that's sort of like, the the, the, the capabilities are limitless now. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was amazing. I mean, like, I was honored, and, you know, a few years ago, I was presented with a Visionary Award for Lighting in uh, the MGM Grand Hotel in Vegas for the Parnelli Conference, which was really, really... Uh, you know, it was flattering for me to uh, receive that award. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then I had to get up and write a speech in front of like a thousand people or whatever <laughs> it was. <laughs> like, yeah. And you get your true public speaking going on and I got a dry mouth in the middle of it and the teleprompter went off and <laughs> I was like flying solo for the rest of the night. It was kind of, uh, it was kind of fun. I think you, uh, you would be able to carry yourself pretty good though. Uh, I try the best I can. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Make a good uh, MC at a wedding. <laughs> that's it that's it just go for it well, well i'm glad i could help you out i mean hopefully this is interesting enough i think it is you know believe me i i'm really i'm honored to meet you and, and to uh to get some stories and uh and uh yeah i appreciate it and i'll uh we'll keep in touch all right man thanks again Howard. okay you take it easy you too bye enjoy bye-bye and that was a nice conversation with mr howard ungaleader it was fun history that man that man is theater history theater rock and roll history let's say rock and roll history rock and roll history everybody um, 
there he is. Thank to everybody for listening to this show. Um, it's, been a, it's been a good week. It's been a good week. Last uh, last week was fun. This week is more fun. And uh, thank everybody for going on Amazon. I see you there on Amazon. And I appreciate you going on Amazon. Thank you very much. You too can help the show out by going to appleog.ca slash Amazon or appleog.ca slash US Amazon. And uh, thanks to the patrons. By going to patreon.com slash appleog, you become a patron. A patron. Um, yeah, here we go. 191 episodes. Knocking on the door. 200, everybody. Woo! Yay, 200. 200. So, see you again next week. I'm going to keep this short. Because uh, last week I, I kind of droned on a little bit. And I don't want to drone on. I don't want this to become this my soapbox moment. Okay? Wait, I'm getting on a soapbox. Okay, good, good, good. Next week, who do I got? Next week, I have my good old friend, Mr. Carmelo Loporto, who is a manager, music person out in Germany. Out in Germany. Out there in Germany. German land. See you next week, everybody. Bye.